patient listeners, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Greatest Game, a limited run podcast on the video games and culture site okbeast.com, which seeks to learn aesthetic theory through the lens of video games. I'm Chase Williams, but I'm super excited to welcome back my co-host, Max Keller. Welcome, welcome. How's it going, dude? Very good. Very glad to be back behind the mic and uh, ready for the second run of this topic. Yeah, right on. First, I want to uh, give a huge shout out to Jono for being our guest on the last episode. It was really insightful to have him on and talk about narrative play and kind of get through that subject because I've been wanting to put thoughts out there about that sort of side of uh, video games, but also how narrative can be applied to all the concepts we learned previously. Um, but we are back here meeting in Texas over the holidays, which is why we're able to record in person, which is always ideal. Um, and so any updates from you, Max? How, how you been? Like, I know you just moved out to Washington, D.C. Yeah. I've been in San Diego. It's been almost a year since we've podcasted on The Greatest Game together. You doing well? Yeah, it's been a wild year. Just you know, from NASA in January all the way up to DC with a new nine to five and a whole new city with the wife. It's a uh, pretty exciting. I know you're heading out to Germany pretty soon as well. Yeah, it's that's uh, who knows what's gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> past that portal. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'm excited to return to this conversation with you. Previously, we talked about video games through I would say like very specific vocabulary and terminology with the purpose of trying to understand the medium in more specific terms, terms that were geared towards video games themselves as a medium. Um, I like to think of those heuristics that we talked about a, a while ago as sort of the building blocks of how video games operate in the same way that like paintings have color and composition and texture and those sorts of things. Now, over the past year and having studied, my uh, focus has turned more towards just the conversation of what makes art art what is an artwork and it's going to be definitely our job to continue to use video games as an example because i think video games fit in this conversation but this conversation is becoming a little more abstracted outside of just video games um i think the knowledge that we kind of go through here like i said is more to be applied towards games and it'll get us thinking about how games fit into this conversation rather than sort of the backwards one right um, I just kind of quickly want to ask you how you uh, continue to pursue art as a subject. I know that you go to art museums and you enjoy looking at it. Are you at all interested in kind of the nitty gritty defining and understanding of art? Um, what are your What is your approach? Because I think people who might know me in this audience know that I have been doing this endeavor in relation to video games and maybe might want to hear kind of your background uh, a little bit more too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, especially recently in Washington, D.C., we have the entire Smithsonian network. Which is sick. So it's all a bunch of free museums with rotating exhibits and um, you get a lot of uh, sort of uh, artwork that has uh, participation from the audience. Uh, You have artwork that is fixed against a wall only for observation and kind of everything in between. There's a lot of free events and uh, all types of modes and mediums of art, right? You're going to get mm-hmm. your performance stuff. You're going to get your temporal music kind of stuff. So it's been really nice to consume all of the art that DC has to offer. Unfortunately, I haven't really been uh, producing as much art as I you know, used to in college. I wrote a lot of uh, performance poetry mm-hmm. and a published poet, which is kind of like a highlight of my art career. Yeah, it's cool. Um, but yeah, outside of that, it's been a lot of consumption of different mediums. And then 
again, it comes down to how you define art. Or am, am I consuming art when I play video games? Some mm-hmm. people say yes, some people say no. You know, when I watch a, a sporting event, am I consuming art? It's tough right. to say sometimes. Yeah, and I just kind of want to like touch on the intent of these conversations being uh, giving a tool set to passionate video game players uh, for understanding what the conversation around art can be. And because I know, I think a lot of people just feel naturally in their gut that video games are art or are artworks. And the whole impetus to my studies, even starting three years ago, was to ask why and to figure that out. And now uh, we can kind of get to the nitty gritty examples and exist in the academic world outside of just our video games media world, you know? And I, the reason also why I say thank you, patient listeners, is because it takes a lot of time to get through all of this information. You know, I literally spent this last year reading and finishing a single book, yeah. uh, which was uh, Aesthetic Theory, which is the book that we're going to transition to in here. And so with that kind of deliberate and that deliberation, it just it takes a while to kind of parse through it. And I'm not even exactly sure that I understand all of it. Yeah. So that kind of gets us into what to expect out of this. I think I'm not coming here uh, trying to give people answers and trying to give people like hard and fast rules and stuff. I really am trying to actually make this more of a conversation now um, than maybe my previous mindset was in like seeking those hard and fast answers. Uh, which kind of brings us to the work that we're drawing on uh, for these next couple episodes, which is Theodore Adorno's Aesthetic Theory. Um, and I want to kind of talk about that book and how it was sort of structured and how it's going to affect our conversation. So Adorno, this was basically a collection of drafts that were written between 1961 and 1969. He was a German philosopher, and he has philosophies that range into other subjects as well, like government and morality and and stuff like that. I haven't seen any of those. And for some reason, Adorno seems to, I think, be ignored when it comes to like aesthetic anthologies. And I have a feeling it actually has to do with his other views. Like he seems to almost be someone who is kind of purposely left out of conversations, which is really strange to me. I might figure out why that is later. So he didn't finish his book. It was um, published uh, posthumously and translated by his wife and like one of his best friends. Wow. And it is this kind of roving text that is not does not present information in the ways that I'm used to it and being structured into paragraphs and one point follows another. And then he he meets his thesis, and then he moves on to the next thing. It was like this uh, cyclone of information that would kind of blow out in a very general sense, and kind of swirl into like a center of like a point that he was kind of making, almost through repetition. He would make these points, and then it would boil out again to kind of start touching on all the general stuff he had mentioned even previously. And so what you got was this really disconnected. Uh, or maybe not disconnected, but disjointed um, propping up of his ideas. And at the end of the book, having finished it, I think that is because that was done purposefully. And the intent is there's really no one way to approach the question of artworks. And when you talk about one aspect of artwork, you're going to bleed into potentially all of them. And I think that's even going to be reflected in our conversation. And I want the listeners to be patient with us because 
at times it may seem like we're bouncing all over the place, but that's because certain like ideas and words might spark um, a, us into a different path and that we have to kind of go down. Um, and so ultimately I went in looking in, in, in this book for a definition of artwork and art and I didn't find, he never really gives a single like paragraph or yeah. a single, uh, you know, even a, a series of pages. It was almost as if the entire book itself was the definition. An attempt at the definition. Yeah. Sure. And it was super murky and what I can kind of lead off and to kind of kick this conversation off as the definition that he was kind of, I think the essence of what he was getting at was that like artworks are inherently a contradiction because he would almost seem to say that they are defined by what they are not. And artworks must be sort of like these new creations um, that have never been seen before. And because of that, they sort of hold, they, they sort of like negate what exists currently. And it is through recognizing kind of like what they're connected to and what they're negating that we can start to understand what they actually are. And even saying that out loud sounds like very jargonist, right. you know, and like murky. So the how I want to question you about definitions is, have you ever tried to conceptualize a single definition as actually a contradiction. And what I'm asking is, can a singular subject actually be, um, be like constitute, can two competing elements constitute a singular whole that is a concept? And you do not know the concept without knowing the two competing sides of what is like kind of the positive statement and the negating statement of what's being defined. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, you get a lot of that in like Eastern philosophy. Like when we talk about contradiction, the first thing that comes to my mind is like Taoism or Zen Buddhism teaches a lot through contradiction. Um, but as far as like a concrete example of like artwork as a contradiction seems difficult because we're talking about nouns. We're not talking about ideas, right? So a lot of times in Buddhism, you'll have someone who, uh, you know, reads three paragraphs of the philosophy and then thinks they really, really get it and they can recite uh, this idea, so they'll go up to someone who's been studying Buddhism for 30 years and just recite, you know, three sentences of something that sounds really enlightened. And the answer that the, the master will often give is, you know, if I say no, I'm lying to you. If I say yes, you'll feel you understand something you don't. Hmm. So it's, the answer is not yes, you get it, whole stop. The answer isn't no, because it, what you're saying is technically true. But again, the contradiction resolves itself once you get deeper into the ideas, so it's a contradiction because you don't understand all the layers of what we're talking about. But it seems like this definition is saying, like, no, the contradiction is the answer. Like you get it once you understand that it is contradictory on its face and the deeper you go, which sounds really difficult to understand. Yeah. And I think to also kind of supply the listener right now with what they might get out of this is I'm, I think what Adorno can offer is a defense against any sort of overarching final understanding of what an artwork needs to be in order to be considered an artwork in the sense that at no, like at any point in time we create this definition of what artwork is, we've essentially introduced an ideology into what art sure. has to be. And that's what I was really starting to understand in all of this. Um, and once I kind of wrapped my head around that, it, it was almost the idea that if if you 
if you put forth a rigid understanding of what artworks are, even in like maybe like a, a general definition, but something that is like sifting the the what's accepted and what's not, you're kind of creating a formula for the end of artwork. Because if if something can be known uh, to such a degree that we have like the golden ratio, right. or we have color theory where um, these uses of colors are the correct way to use colors. These notes are always beautiful. Then once we've kind of decoded what the formula is for like maximum enjoyment, we'll never need anything else past that. But art has never stopped being made and has never really stopped evolving. And because of that, we know that there is no like set singular thing because the moment we try to define it, there almost seems to be like a counterculture artist who's ready to destroy that definition. Art like necessitates going against the definition of art, right? The second you try to define it, it opens the doors for, like case in point, the Dada movement, right? Yeah. You have more and more attempts at making the beautiful until you have something where people actually take it pretty seriously. If this is like the, the best art, mm-hmm. then that necessitates you having a group of countercultures coming in and sort of mucking up the place. And that fits beautifully with art. In that, I, in my mind, I think we talked about this the last two episodes of my democratization of art and the idea of it's really kind of up to the artist and the subject to define what is and isn't art. And I'm excited to see where this conversation goes. In that, um, so like if everything's art, then nothing is. And like, what are we talking about? But sure. it seems like here you're saying no. There's a stricter definition. We can actually start categorizing things and getting to something that's a useful definition to start uh, understanding kind of what what art is. Right, and that will all, that's also good to mention because. In our previous episodes, we were kind of looking for that definition of art. Right. I remember giving a definition that said something along the lines that like art is man-made and provides aesthetic experience, right? right? Now, um, when you compare Adorno's sort of, what he's willing to consider, to consider an artwork uh, is extremely exclusive. Yeah. Like he's on the opposite end of the spectrum of saying, even in your eyes, like art is created by whatever is designed by man and considered art by the artist, right. is I think what you said, which is extremely open. He is on the opposite end of this spectrum. And I'm not necessarily saying that he's right, but it was very uh, interesting to kind of be exposed to ideas that were so exclusive, right? Yeah. And that kind of brings me to the differences in the terminology that he uses where he distinguishes a difference between the word, like between art and artworks. And, and this was something that was interesting. Like to him, an artwork was this kind of one singular work that holds the mantle of what we're kind of defining, you know, and he didn't give a lot of examples of them, which was a little frustrating because like I said, I was in there to find like answers, but now it forces me to find the examples on my own. Um, so how do you feel about like, taking those two words apart, art and artworks. Yeah, so it, I think it, what it sounds like to me is that he's defining art in the way that I would define like good art, right? I'm willing to say that it's art, doesn't mean anyone wants to look at it. You know, doing poetry in college, we used to talk about, you know, do you define yourself as a poet? And my answer was, yeah. You're a poet if you write poetry. That makes you a poet by definition. Yeah. Doesn't mean anyone wants to hear your stuff. Sure. No one wants to read your poetry, but you're an artist if you make art. I'm willing to have that um, open of a definition. And then there's good art, which I now will have categories of, yes. you know, with, with meaning and maybe being counterculture. Like, can propaganda be good art? 
Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm willing to have that open conversation. But it sounds like this guy's saying there's artworks, which is what I would say is art. Yeah. And then art itself is a more temporal experience with the artwork. I think if you actually reverse those, it's more in line with what you're saying. Okay. So he kind of talks about production art. And there's a quote from his book where he says, art likewise is in no way simply equivalent with artworks for artists are always also at work on art and not only on artworks. So the idea here is that if you're a professional artist in the video game industry and it is your job to create assets that are used in the game, you're an artist. Like I'm not going to sit here and say like, well, you have to create a masterwork or in your, in, in your terminology, if you don't create the best that art can possibly be, you're not an artist. It's like, no, you can be a production artist in the sense that you're almost honing a craft. You're like an artisan in that way. Um, and that's kind of where the difference starts to boil down for, I think what he was putting forth there where it's like, you can have painters that live off of selling their paintings. Uh, not every single singular painting they produce may be an artwork, but it is still like, art in the sense that it is being produced by, um, I don't I mean, and here's, it's even breaking out for me, someone who uh, functions in like a creative field, you mm-hmm. know, what do you think about that? So is he willing then, it sounds like he's more in line with me, right? If the subject wants to buy a landscape painting and someone's a landscape painter, traditionally thought of someone who's like, that's not, not a lot of meaning and that's kind of pretty to look at. I would say that's not like excellent art. Like mm-hmm. landscape paintings, I don't think can be excellent art at least in my subjective perspective i just don't see a lot of value in that sure um but it sounds like he would agree with that and that that's art just because an artist painted it yes so now we're back to sort of a more general so why why, why would you say that uh this author thinks that it's more because the the real heart strict. the real heart of the book comes in what is an artwork then right okay. you know if if every painting is art and every um level that is designed by a designer is art and in the sense that it's something that's crafted, then what are those one, what are the one distinguishing works that we consider seminal, you know, like great, how do we understand them as great? Those are artworks. And how do we know when we have an artwork versus when we don't. Right. Um, I know you kind of mentioned uh, wanting to bring up how parents understand their children's art. Does that kind of fit into this? kind of conversation. Yeah, if we're talking about an artwork being something that pushes the bounds of art or is something that should be held up very high, this sounds very subjective and difficult to define in any sort of meaningful way outside of, you know, sentences that start well off with I feel or I think, uh-huh. right, which is not the purpose of this podcast or the book that you just read. Right. So you could imagine parents looking at their children's doodles and putting it on the fridge and seeing a lot of value in their macaroni art, whereas everyone else in the world would see that and it's just, well, it's kind of a... Whatever, it's a child's doodle. Mm-hmm. So how, what would be the defense against that? When I'm saying it's so subjective that parents would see the kid's macaroni art as better than the Mona Lisa. Sure. And they would believe, under polygraph, they would believe that. So I'm wondering, well, if it's not subjective, but we can get some sort of objective definition, how would you, how would you defend against that? So without getting too far ahead of where I kind of want to go, I want to take, I want to enshrine the word artwork as a concept that has its place in civilization and is a concept that has been spoken in language for thousands of years at this point. And what is the function of creating art and, and having sort of a sphere of human endeavor that we label as, un, as art? 
And if it is some, it's if it's a sphere that is worth dedicating time to, what is it doing for civilization? And I think where we're going to be headed is artworks essentially move civilization forward. That artworks can change society, and that artworks can teach us something about ourselves or about society or about war or human nature or you know whatever whatever you want to talk about it can teach us things that we never knew before and we can look at moments in time where there was life before this artwork and now having seen it and grasped with like what it is now there's life after because we've been imbued with understanding that we never had before wow so you would say it's beyond the singular person you you would need a culture shift yes and then that would indicate you have an artwork yes is there a way to measure that? Obviously not in any sort of scientific way, but I mean, maybe even like surveys of people. Like how would you understand like this is objectively an artwork and not just I have changed after I saw this painting? Okay. So there's a moment where Adorno is talking about um, drama and in specifics, uh, tragic and like tragic form and tragedy. Uh, the quote is really small and I have like, a, I, have, I can expound on it, but he says, however, the basic tendency of tragic form in contrast to its mythical subjects the dissolution of the spell of fate and the birth of subjectivity. And so in this passage, he is talking about the play Euripides. And he is comparing man-made tragedy as um, something that can be uh, viewed and enjoyed in uh, contrast to like mythical text, things that need to sort of like are so serious, you know, like books of existence uh, at the time of Greek, uh, of the Greece, of uh, the Greece, in the time of, of um, the Greek republics, the fact that you could go and watch people, watch characters interact in front of you as a means of entertainment and sort of, and this is my own thought, and, and, and think of their actions um, as like, why did he do this? What was his motivation here? Well, what I would have done in this moment was such a vast um, distinction away from mythical texts, which are law, like the law of the universe, the law of how people should act. We're talking about the gods of creation and everything. And to be able to question um, what they saw in front of them as he made the right decision, he made the wrong decision, was the first time that people were able to speak of these words and these um, actions in a subjective manner. Instead of being given stories that were supposed to be objective truth, he's, what I took this quote to mean is, through the introduction of tragedy, we were given our un first understanding of the subjectivity of interpreting works. And that could be seen as like a major point in the history of thought, right? Well, it's a good point. So you, you would never question the texts of what Zeus said. Right. Right. That's what, just what happened and they're gods and who are you to question anything that they're doing? Exactly. But all of a sudden we have in front of us uh, unique circumstances where characters are now big time agents and there are major developments happening. I always thought the idea between those dramas, uh, the, the, the primary focus was that the audience knew something that the characters didn't. Right. And so I, I'm wondering... Which is almost the opposite of the mythical text, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm also curious there's not really a whole lot of ability to do, you know, if I'm, if I'm the audience and I know things that the characters don't know, then the characters act based on knowledge that they don't have. I'm wondering how I, 
I'm just, I, I, it's a, kind of the first thing that's coming to my mind is how could we expect the audience to be that subjective when they know things that the characters don't know? Um, not a whole lot going anywhere with this thought, but I mean, it's a fair point. The idea of, if we're talking about artworks being things that change culture, and now we have the art of the theater and the drama of the theater mm-hmm. that's changing the way people can interact with artwork. Yeah. That seems to fit the stricter definition of what an artwork is. Sure. Yeah. And and think about any any new form of artwork. Like what did the honing of sculpture do to society at large? Like what did um why like and he and he starts to he ties art movements in with their historical and sort of sociological backgrounds that in saying they're kind of one and the same, you know, like we talked a great deal about extra textual constraints in our first uh, episodes as being knowledge that you bring to a video game that doesn't exist inside of it. So the fact that I uh, have played Dark Souls and I go into a new Dark Souls game, I already know how the game works because it's information that's in my head that I bring um, towards the, the work your like cultural background, your upbringing, everything about you is sort of this extra textual um, layer that's going to affect how you interact with an artwork. And when you have a, a vast, and you know, in human beings, as much as we are different, there's also many things about us that are the exact same. And so if you can find a new form of art that interacts with people in such a way that it literally changes them, then there's something to that art form um, that is introducing information or knowledge or wisdom or insight that has never really been seen before. You know, like the very fact that video games are structured the way that they're structured in in the sense that their meaning is not um, transmitted as like as as straight messages where it's like, here's information that's encoded into symbols given to a player and then decoded, and now they have their their message. With video games, meaning is performative. Like, what you do with your controller and how you interact with this object is what is creating your knowledge of the game, right? Like, you can, you can say, and we can probably, we'll probably touch on this uh, later, maybe even the next episode, that it is a fingerprint of the video game that you're playing, how you move your hands with it right. physically, and the fact that you know how to kill Valkyries in God of War is specific knowledge that's given to the player through their performance with the game. That instruction of meaning is different than how meaning has been given in like typical visual uh, art forms prior. Right? No. And I don't necessarily know how that changes things, but I think if we're going to call artworks video games, we have to start looking at how they're fundamentally changing us. Yeah. And it's my hunch that they are. I just don't know. That's kind of where my studies need to go next. But is that starting to make sense? I mean, the level of interactiveness of video games, I think, is something that makes it stand out beyond all other mediums. Right? The ability to, like, the artwork doesn't proceed until I precede it. Right. With a book, the text is already there. With a movie, you can hit play. And if I'm watching the screen or not, the art is proceeding. A painting is in a museum whether I'm viewing it or not. Yeah. But the video game does not proceed until I move the character, until I decide to allow this game to proceed. Same thing with chess, board games. Right? A lot of that interactive stuff is interesting in that the artist has made something, but the artwork it's is dependent on me. Right? Exactly. It's incomplete until I allow the art to proceed. And... 
I kind of want to go off on a tangent there because that incompletion, uh, which you're talking about with video games, is actually like pivotal to how he puts forth his definition of artworks, even just broadly with paintings, with music, with anything. That the idea that it is incomplete until it has been consumed and experienced by the audience member. And here is where we get back to the idea of like artworks needing to be new, that they need to be presenting something that we've never seen before. And because we've never seen them before, we have no schema in our mind with which to understand them. And when we're essentially exposed to them for the first time, our mind is are creating new neural pathways, like new cascades of neural activity in order to deconstruct what's in front of us, understand what's in front of us. And that process is what he calls the objectification of the work. It is the work becoming real. And as opposed to it being unreal, like previously it stood as its own, as something that was unknown. And then once exposed to a person in a very much the way that I feel like, I think a really good way to think about it is like when you put iron wool into a purely oxygen environment, how it, it turns into, it, it bursts into flames. To me, that's how, that's, that's what artworks are. It is the, it is the iron wool. We are the oxygen and that flame is its lifespan. And as we are taking in the art and we're decoding it and we're turning it into something that we can understand, that is us bringing something that was once never known before. So unreality into objective reality it is, it, it is us turning it from its like potential state into its resting state. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I mean, the problem comes down to the subjectivity of it, right? I mean, if I'm viewing treachery of images, right? pipe, right? This is not a pipe. I love that painting. Mm-hmm. I get a lot out of that. I can imagine somebody else looking at it and saying like, okay, well, it's a pipe and it's not a pipe and I get it. It's paint and it's, the paint isn't a pipe, but it's depicting a pipe. Hi, huh, it's funny. And they walk away, right? Yeah. And I'm sitting there just engrossed in this painting. So to me, that's, again, like how much iron wool, right? I'm putting in pounds of it. And someone else you know, puts in a couple of scraps. So it sounds so subjective even in that light where i would say this is an artwork period and everyone else could say well no it's not really so we still i'm still battling with this idea of the subjectivity of the definition because i want something not subjective right that's kind of my goal in this conversation yeah to walk away with something obviously not scientific but something that we can at least have some sort of litmus test as we go about different pieces of artwork yeah but i think we're starting to just get to the borders of of what subjectivity of how we can even understand it or like, or the fact that we can never get rid of it. Like I have always viewed artworks as the realm in which subjectivity has its reign because I do not want subjectivity in my conversations about morality and ethics. I'm not about to, I'm, I, I'm, I would fight a like postmodern relativist to my dying breath if it came (laughs) to it to try to say that, you know, these things do exist. Right. But I think with, at the end of the day, um, if you believe that there is an objective reality around you that only our senses can take in, um, th- in fact, that we are constrained by our senses in order to see it, then artworks present a piece of reality that we've never seen before in which we're going to subjectively consume. Now, that may lead us to certain paintings that one person in particular, it just happens to be that with who this person is, the upbringing that they've had, their ideas on X, Y, and Z, because of all of these perfect combinations of circumstance, they view that work and holy shit, it's an aesthetic artwork experience. 
Uh, and then for you, it's not. And in that case, it would just be a very subjective thing. But could it still be an artwork? I think if it provides aesthetic experience, then we can still call it that. And okay. I, we, I would still want to touch more on what aesthetic experience means, having read more about it now. Um, I'm now in the realm of philosophers that are quite simply saying aesthetics is more than conversations about artworks and beauty. It's actually the philosophy of how human beings make meaning. It is how we take in our environment in such a way that creates um, langu language, yeah. essentially, and signs, uh, which is very interesting. So if someone is having an experience where they're decoding something for the first time and they're having these neural cascades where new information, new understanding is being objectified into their mind, then I can't tell them that they're not experiencing art. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, but that brings us, you know, so if we want to have like a gauge on how important something is, when we talk about your um, example of the treachery of images, which everyone should go look up if you're, <laughs> yeah, you know, pause it real quick. Yeah. It, is, it is the famous painting that is just says, this, yeah, this says this is not a pipe and it's a picture of a pipe. What did that do for the conversation about art, right? Like how did that change our perception of art, what artworks could be? Because a big thing with Adorno, he uses the term like bourgeoisie often. And to me, that's kind of like a loaded term that I don't exactly, I think it can, I, you would, I, I feel like I would really need to know the man to understand what he means behind that. Right. I view it more as like a social elite and he's very much like anytime the social elite or, um, or even like entrenched capitalist, uh, like modes of production in the sense that like the biggest video game companies in the world, if we allow the social elite to define what artworks are, by virtue of them being the social elite, or if we we'll allow the biggest AAA studios to tell us what video games are and can be just because they have the resources to make them, then that's what artworks need to begin to fight against because they're going to crystallize what artworks are. They're going to tell us what they can be and what they are not. And the second you tell us what they're not, that's when art honestly ha has the most potential to change. And so even if someone else doesn't get a whole lot out of the pipe, if we still just look at the history of painting and what could be considered a painting or how artists and artistic circles began to change the way they think about painting because of this, literally this idea, yeah. then that was an artwork, you know? Well, if art has to be like, that's a really high bar, right? Yes. That's a crazy high bar it's to start talking about. Like this is a worthwhile piece of art to consume. I mean, how do you feel about like all the GTA knockoffs mm -hmm. or video games that took artworks and then said, well, I can make it sort of cheaper and a bit simpler. What, what are those things? I knockoffs of like what you would say as a seminal piece of art. Yeah. I think at that point they are, um, they're reproductions and it's the idea that Van Gogh painted starry night and that painting starry night was an artwork because of the way that it, as, you know, like the, the way he uses color and his brush stroke and the way that it almost like dazzles the, the viewer. Right. And it's like this new uh, technique that had never been seen before. And it opened up expressionism in such a degree or whatever it was. Um, we can, that was the artwork. When, when we caught, like when a painter copies it, he's just reproducing it. You know, he's, when it's printed on a coaster, it's it is now production art. Okay. You know, it is being reproduced. Like 
the second, and that's why um, it's really like art. Art used to be thought of as you want to. It's like representational of reality. Like it used to be the goal in painting to make things as realistic as possible. Sure. And once we got to a point where art was literally like hyper real, um, or just real enough, art didn't stop. Then art rebelled against that, and it became expressionistic. And it became impressionistic. So once, to, I guess to answer your question, like once we've we've reached the pinnacle moment in a particular unique genre, essentially, then everything else, like your GTA clones, uh, are just a copy. And maybe they make some changes, but you're you're. You're watching that kind of particular form. Are you saying that in a derogatory way? What do you mean? They're just copies? Um, no, because like, I, I think Dark Souls is a great example, right? Like, the introdu- like Dark Souls, when it first came out for the first time, it literally changed the game industry. There is a moment before and after Dark Souls. And to me, that's why it is a masterpiece and it's an artwork. Yeah. Since Dark Souls has come out, Dark Souls 2 has come out, 3 has come out, Bloodborne, and then hosts of other... Um, other games that use their formula. They can tweak it in different ways. They can change the heuristics of their play spaces to make what I would call like, um, like borderline or like boundary, like different boundaries of sort of the prime experience, um, like edge cases, like edge case differences to the, to the games. But the discovery that was made, the design discovery that was made right. of checkpoints scattered throughout the world, respawn when you die so do the enemies and you have to go get your souls again that was a that was a singular discovery those new dark souls clones are not rediscovering that the discovery's done and there's going to become a time and i wrote about it in an article that i wrote about last year the title was the lifespan of a masterpiece and i was talking about dark souls that artwork eventually is going to like how we're able to interact with it in all the different ways, it's going to, it's going to fizzle out. It's a star that's going to die because eventually you're going to see every possible state in that game by virtue of what its design allows. And then at that moment, we can only just recreate it over and over again. Well, my mind jumps to like Weird Al Yankovic, right? We're talking about only original art and the discovery is finished and therefore these things, maybe not derogatory, but clearly not in the same category as the originals. What about Weird Al Yankovic? What about parody artists that... I think a lot of people like more than the originals. Yeah. Um, Is he discovering something? I mean, it's making new music, but it's not really new and it's entirely derivative. Well, this, I think this is an odd, but good chance to segue into another piece of knowledge that I got from this book that I think is like pivotal in understanding art. And that is the idea of conceptual material. So we can say that artworks are made out of materials, whether it's canvas, dyes, stone, whatever it is, right? The big discovery that I had from this book was that concepts themselves are a part of that material. And I'm going to read a quote here. Uh, It starts like this. Material, by contrast, is what artists work with. It is the sum of all that is available to them, including words, colors, sounds, associations of every sort and every technique ever developed. To this extent, forms, too, can become material. It is everything that artists encounter about which they must make a decision. I thought that was super profound because he's essentially saying that artworks exist 
outside of just the physical material that they're made of. Every decision an artist makes becomes part of that work's form. And so deciding, if Weird Al decides to use different words and different ideas in a way that the relationship it has to the original work is known and is utilized, that relationship, like that string that is connecting them is a part of the conceptual material that was placed into the work on which it relies and without which it doesn't make sense. And so what do you, how, what do you, how do you take that? I mean, I agree with all of that. And I, I think that you could make similar arguments to clones of different video games. And yet somehow we view them as different. And I, me included, right? There's something about being derivative in an attempt to knock off something versus being derivative in an attempt to be original. Yeah. And it, that I just see is different, you know? I think it absolutely is. And I think a great example of this is a game like Undertale, which takes uh, like tried and true video game conventions and mockingly almost plays with them, inverts them, um, or leans into them heavily and basically says like, this is how video games work and we're going to say it right to your face. But the fact that they said it in that way was so new and the fact that they were using the ideas, like our understanding, our extra textual constraints that we brought to the game, yeah. they were using that as a part of the conceptual material in the work is a part of their stroke of genius, yeah. you know, and that's where stuff gets kind. I think this, that's where the, the definition like really blows, blows up because you can kind of consider a vast majority of concepts um, surrounding artworks, whether it's the sociological context, the historical context, um, who the artist is, your knowledge of who the artist is, the fact that maybe this painting was made by a death row inmate, that just that knowledge can completely change the aesthetic experience of that work. Should it? Why not? Because it's it's the artwork, right? I mean, who who cares who painted it, how old they were, anything, right? If I look at Starry Night, the artwork should stand on its own, shouldn't it? Well, think about it this way. I used to avoid reading the titles of artworks at museums and even the descriptions. And I would say to myself, I should be able to just look at this thing and get something out of it. Sure. And I almost had this idea of being like this sort of passive observer, right? And I let go of that and I said like, I just need to be me, you know, because I can only be me. And if the artist relies on me knowing maybe like this paragraph for the, the work to make sense, or for the work to be experienced, to me that's okay. It's like, it's. I mean, there's even those like Japanese sodas, right? Where there there's like a ball that you punch in right before you drink it, and it's what adds the carbonation. And to me, sometimes the artwork is flat, and then you say like, oh, this was um, made by this particular person at this particular time, and because I know that, now I'm thinking about the artwork in a completely different way, and maybe now the artwork becomes aesthetic. I think what we should avoid, and maybe what you're trying to avoid, is that we shouldn't allow, we should never allow the artist to have the final say in how something is interpreted. And that's something that Adorno very much goes into. He's like, even the artist's intent, the message that they were trying to get across, that's a piece of the conceptual material of the work. It's not the work, it's not how the work should be interpreted, but 
what if, you know, like with the propaganda posters, right? The fact that we know that these things were made for the purposes of, of uh, propping up a certain government initiative might be the X factor that makes this work catch fire in a different way than what was even intended. Yeah, I, I always view the artist as the, the speaker, right? So the artist has a message to get across. And I, I guess I always thought of sort of like you can miss the meaning. Like if I look at a piece of artwork and I don't get it, there's something I'm not getting. But it sounds like the definition here is if I don't get it, there's nothing to get. Because I, being the subjective person, have the last word as we look at the art. And the artist has a meaning, but who cares? Right? If I look at the painting and I'm not getting that, then I'm right. I think. Is there a wrong way to interpret art? Is there a right way to interpret a, a certain artwork? I mean, no. And and that that kind of gets the heart of, you know, that gets back into its subjectivity. But one person can make interpretive choices based on the fact that they're from a different country versus someone else who might look at a painting and, and have a completely different experience with it. And one one of those people might see it as something that's aesthetic and one person might not get it at all. So to say you don't get it is not a phrase that should or really can be used in this context. Like there's nothing to get if you didn't get it. Because <sighs> the of. artist would be shaking, right? With anger at that phrase. Well, too bad. I mean, and that's why like one of the very first, uh, the very first quote that I even wrote down at the start of this book is, all efforts to restore art by giving it a social function of which art is itself uncertain and by which it expresses its own uncertainty are doomed. And so what he's saying there is that like art is not a medium for your messages. Art is going to, it is like having a child. It's like, you're going to make this thing and you're going to put it out in the world. And then you have no say over its path forward at that point. It can be taken the way you want it to be. It could be, it could become a legendary piece of artwork for all the reasons why you didn't want it to be. Tough shit, dude. It's aesthetic for reasons that you kind of didn't have control over. But there were reasons that you wanted it to be understood, right? As an artist, you don't just... There's no like free agency of the painting, right? There's people who are viewing it and they might change the meaning or it might become a cultural meme for whatever reason. But the artist has a very specific purpose behind this painting. Maybe. And you... What if they don't? What if they do? I mean, think about Jackson Pollock, right? Sure. I think, I think you, you have expressed that you dislike his stuff because it seems so aimless and arbitrary. I mean, I understand the idea of action, right? Like the kind of the ex machina understanding of Jackson Pollock in that if we wait until we have the perfect action, no one ever takes action. So we must act despite an ignorance of the consequences of those actions in an attempt to make something beautiful. Like I understand that concept and in that I kind of like Pollock, but yeah, I, I mean, I would agree that there's not a lot of like technical skill. And when you look at it, like that's one painting can make that message. You don't need an artwork, a portfolio of dripping paint cans to make that message would be my critique of Pollock. But I only like the painting insofar as I'm understanding that message. If I didn't get that message, I would not like Jackson Pollock. In the way that I like paintings where I get the message more than I like Starry Night. I don't really get the message of Starry Night, if there is one, which there probably isn't other than Van Gogh drank a lot of absinthe and got fucked up and looked at light shows and they looked crazy, so he painted with this crazy viewpoint. Right. So to me, it's interesting to look at, but it's far, far less uh, relevant and far less deserving of our gratitude than paintings that aren't in museums but have deep meaning through anti-war whatever philosophical point you want to make. 
So I think the message of the artist seems to me at least to carry more weight than any sort of technical skill or interesting aesthetic visually that I might get out of, out of an artwork. I mean, is it not possible to put them all on an equal plane? Because I think that's sort of what Adorno is trying to do. He said, like, in the sense that not one of the things that you mentioned, like the technique with which, which, with which it was produced, the materials with which it was produced, the meaning with which it was imbued uh, with by the artist, or even who the artist was, or what country they came from, none of that is going to have an objective... Um, standard of value over whether this thing can be good or not. It is more about kind of the temporal moment in time when this thing was made and the background with which it was produced and, and, and put out there that kind of dictates how it's going to be received because you can't control who sees it, you know? So I would say Pablo Picasso paints Guernica, a painting anti-war against the Spanish Civil War. I look at it and I think it is gorgeous. I love that painting. I love the message behind the painting. To me, that painting, some people would look at it and say, oh, it's kind of grotesque and because it's a very cubist style of painting versus like Starry Night. To me, I, I, you can look at it for a little bit, I guess, but I don't get a whole lot out of it. Mm-hmm. Right? And to me, it all comes down to the intended message of the artist. And that seems like flying in the face of this theory and I have yet to hear, so you put them on the same playing field. Okay. Then subjectively, I'm still saying that the message of the artist is far more relevant, right? Even if we all start in the same field and I look at them all objectively, then you know why Starry Night up there versus someone's landscape painting of a sunset at the Grand Canyon? Like to me, they're both just sort of like, oh, that's nice, and then that's the my entire interaction with that painting versus something that like Senapa on Pipe, right? Treachery of Images, Son of Man, Guernica, right? All these different paintings to me garner uh, and deserve much more respect. Do entirely from the, the message of the artist. And there is something you can get from it. If you look at Guernica and don't understand that it's anti-war, you're not getting it. There is something to get and you're not getting it. Mm-hmm. Which then I, I think has a, a negative repercussion to your aesthetic experience with that artwork. Yeah. You're not understanding the message that's intended for the recipient to be getting. But, but I think what we have to do is try to not equate the whole experience of the work with that message. That that message is a piece of the work. It is, it is the images that you're seeing combined with the message that is giving you the experience. I agree. I think painting is a method of communication. It's one method. Same with sculpture, same with poetry. I think it's a method of communication. Yeah, any art is because you're essentially receiving information. But then what am I communicating with Starry Night? I mean, at that point in time, and think about about it in terms of its history, right? Um, At that point in time, it could have been the case that paintings, there might have been schools of paintings uh, that that just taught students and they said, you can't paint like this. And it, it was really Van Gogh to be the one to say, yeah, we can. Sure. And in that moment in time to see that painting is so much more uh, to, to those people than it is to us uh, for, for them to see it and be like, this is unreal. I've never, yeah. I didn't even know this could exist And the fact that we're so familiar with it. It's it's aesthetic aspect is kind of dead They've played Dark Souls till the nth degree. They can't. They don't want to beat that boss anymore. Yeah. They move on. Guernica, on the other hand, is a new video game that they've never played before that does things they've never seen before, and it happens to express a particular quality that is anti-war. And we're kind of getting towards like the 
the end of this first half and we just got to the idea of expression. Yeah. And expression is huge in this book in terms of like what an artwork should kind of be doing. Like for as much as we want to avoid like hard lines and what artworks like must sort of like the boxes they need to check. What he does kind of say is that like true artworks have what he calls truth content and like social con like the truth content in the sense that it's really hard to describe. <laughs> they, they will express something by virtue of their form and that expression will be felt and that expression can be something like a single word or a phrase like anti-war, you know, like you, you can essentially um, receive meaning that is not connected to words is not corrected, connected to language. It is something that you are experiencing in this like pre linguistic mind body sure. as a mind body organism that when you finally are able to articulate it, you say this is anti-war, but that moment of that pre linguistic quality is its expression. Yeah. And I mean, for Adorno, the artwork needs to have that expression. So one more quick question on our way out here. Yeah. You have a painting in front of you. It's painted by a human adult. It could be painted by a seven-year-old child, or it could be painted by an elephant. Mm -hmm. You're saying who the artist is changes the value of that artwork. I think it can potentially change the aesthetic experience of the artwork. Absolutely. Huh. I think knowing that an elephant did this, that that is that is an extra textual constraint. Yeah. That is knowledge that you cannot get rid of and you can't you can't subtract it from your experience anymore. And with that knowledge, it might be what lights the fuse into this cascade of like, oh my god, well, if this animal can do this, then what does it mean for an animal to do this and make me have this experience? And you know, and it can send you on this train of thought that brings you insight that you never had before. And to me know? it seems like that's like the message of the art. So I would look at a painting, you could say, that's pretty bad. Actually, I don't like that at all. Somebody says, oh, an elephant painted it. You'd be like, that's the greatest painting I've ever seen. Yeah. And I'm, it, it seems like you could argue that that's the wrong way to interpret art. The art is objective and you should look at it for its value by itself. Or you could say, that's crazy an elephant painted that. And then, yeah, you get a whole message of the philosophy of animal cognition, right? You can get down that rabbit hole as well. So interesting something to think about. Yeah. Okay. So with our next episode, I think what we're going to start to touch on is I think we need to get to expression and maybe talk a little bit more about um, aesthetics being more of a study of the creation of meaning and talk a little bit about like affordances and qualities as a vocabulary and how that factors into expression and how expression then back ties back into kind of social knowledge and, and change. Okay, cool. All right. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, that was been, that's been this episode. Um, we've got one more for you guys in this season of the greatest game. Uh, make sure to go to okbeast.com. If you want to find this podcast and other fantastic podcasts as well, you can follow okbeast on Twitter. They're at okbeast now, and we will be back for another episode. Thank you all for listening.